Imagine a witch. What do you see? A woman, almost certainly. Does she have wiry gray hair and a hunched back? Maybe she is scowling over a cauldron, screeching away into the darkness on a broomstick, screaming as she burns at the stake. Maybe she is hanging from the gallows in a dark gown on a gray New England day, the solemn sermon of an old reverend falling on her dead ears. Or is she a vision in a little black dress, wiggling her nose to work her will, only wearing her pointed hat for giggles, hanging out in the back of a New Age bookstore lurking in a magic shop, meeting her coven in the woods on a full moon. If I asked you to imagine a witch and all you saw were women dying in history books or casting spells across a television screen, have I got news for you. My name is Bronte Mansfield, and this is Mystic. Witches have always lived in that foggy space between the imagined and the individual. This is the first scene of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Shakespeare calls these women the wayward or weird sisters. All three of them are haggard crones, their bodies bent and heavy, evil and malcontent. When Macbeth sets out to kill his rival and guest King Duncan, it is the witches he consults. They spend their scenes stalking the Scottish countryside, scheming and soothsaying. Their spells, first seen on stage in 1606, are now so immortal that they come tumbling out of children's mouths when they trick-or-treat on Halloween. Dapple, dapple, toil and trouble, fire, burn and cauldron bubble. For much of modern history, the bard's famous play shaped the popular image of witches. But Shakespeare didn't conjure those witches and the tragedy of Macbeth from the murkiest depths of his imagination. He was inspired by some wildly popular books. Macbeth and King Duncan were real men who fought over the Kingdom of Scotland around the year 1040. The story appears in Hollinshed's Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland, published in 1577, when Shakespeare was a teenager. The chronicles were written centuries after the events they relate, and contain many exaggerated stories of witchcraft and other chicanery used to explain away the ailments and downfalls of powerful men. Here is a passage that predates the life of the real Macbeth. In the meantime, the king fell into a languishing disease, not so grievous as strange, that none of his physicians could perceive what to make of it. But about that present time, there was a murmuring amongst the people of how the king was vexed with no natural sickness, but by sorcery and magical art, practiced by a sort of witches dwelling in the town of Moorland. So they were taught by evil spirits and hired to work the feet by nobles of Moorland. The standers-by that heard such an abominable tale told by these witches straightaways broke the image and caused the witches, according as they had well deserved, to be burned to death. The next day, the king's health was restored, but when he was later murdered in his bed by a rival, sound familiar, all magical hell broke loose. For the space of six months together, after this heinous murder was thus committed, there appeared no sun by day nor moon by night in any part of the realm. But still, 
was the sky covered with continual clouds, and sometimes such outrageous winds arose with lightnings and tempests that the people were in great fear of present destruction. Monstrous sights were also seen within the Scottish kingdom that year. Horses in Lothian, being of singular beauty and swiftness, did eat their own flesh and would in no ways taste any other meat. There was a gentlewoman brought forth with a child without eyes, nose, hand, or foot. There was a sparrowhawk strangled by an owl. These are people who took their magic and pathetic fallacy very seriously. Here's what happened when Macbeth himself strolled onto the scene, the kingdom of Scotland, in his sights. Macbeth and Banquo journeyed toward where the king then lay, passing through the woods and fields, when suddenly, in the midst of a glade, there met them three witches in strange and wild apparel, resembling creatures of the elder world, whom, when they had attentively beheld, wondering much at the sight, said, All hail Macbeth, that hereafter shall be king of Scotland. The women issued a prophecy about Macbeth, his rule, and his unlucky end before vanishing. Hollinshed notes that this was at first reputed to be but some fantastical illusion by Macbeth and Banquo, but afterward, the common opinion was that these women were either the weird sisters, that is, as ye would say, the goddesses of destiny, or else some nymphs or fairies imbued with knowledge of prophecy by their necromantical science, because everything came to pass as they had spoken. But Shakespeare did not have to look back to Hollinshed and the 11th century to find inspiration for his witches. By 1606, when Macbeth first hit the stage, Great Britain was host to a contagious hysteria, witch hunts. Throughout the 17th century, men and women were put on trial and executed for being witches. Neighbor blamed neighbor for illnesses and business failures. Villages accused their church leaders of cavorting with the devil. A nine-year-old girl named her own mother as a witch, only to be hanged as a witch herself 20 years later. People were tortured, stripped, and searched for the mark of the devil on their flesh. The King of England himself wrote a manual for the detection and destruction of witchcraft. The whole of Great Britain was hunting for witches. And to understand why, we need only hear the story of one young Scottish girl named Galus Duncan. The year was 1590. Galus Duncan was the young maidservant of a man named David Seaton in a small Scottish town east of Edinburgh. A pamphlet called News from Scotland, printed a year later in 1591, tells the tale. The maid used secretly to be absent and to leave her master's house every other night. This Galus Duncan took in hand to help all such as were troubled or grieved with any kind of sickness or infirmity, and in short space did perform many matters most miraculous. Having never done the like before, she made her master and others to be in great admiration and wondered thereat. David Seaton had his maid in some great suspicion that she did not do those things by natural and lawful ways, but rather he supposed it to be done by some extraordinary and unlawful means. Her master began to grow very inquisitive and examined her by which ways and what means she was able to perform matters of so great importance. She gave him no answer. Frustrated, David Seaton devised a new plan. He did with the help of others torment her with the torture of the pillywinks upon her fingers, which is a grievous torture. Grievous is an understatement. Pillywinks is a deceivingly cute name for thumbscrews. The device would apply more and more pressure to a victim's fingers until their skin split and their bones were crushed. Given the state of medicine just after the twilight of the Dark Ages, the damage was often permanent. Still, 
Scales Duncan did not buckle, so Seton and his friends tried a different approach. They took to binding or wrenching her head with a cord or rope, which is a most cruel torment, yet she would not confess anything. Suspecting that she had been marked by the devil, as commonly witches are, they made diligent search about her and found the enemy's mark to be in her forecraig or forepart of her throat. Much to my disappointment, forecraig was not 16th century slang for vagina, but it might as well have been. Many subsequent women were stripped bare, their naked flesh scoured, and their genitals inspected by men to find any mole or birthmark they could declare to be the mark of the devil. In the end, it was this mark that signed Gillis Duncan's execution order. The devil's mark found, she confessed, that all her doings were done by the wicked allurements and enticements of the devil, and that she did them by witchcraft. At the time, it was thought that groups of witches gathered in the forest while the rest of the world slumbered. They arrived riding broomsticks and stools, or flew about using a levitating ointment rendered from the fat of sacrificed children. Once together, the new initiates would sign a contract with the devil and have a feast of Christian babies that parodied the Eucharist. Then, joined by dogs and cats, the witches had an orgy before flying home to their sleeping families and masters. This is where David Seaton thought his maidservant was going under the cover of darkness, despite the fact that no such unholy gathering ever took place. Galus Duncan was imprisoned, and then she started naming names. The maid told her tormentors that she was a member of a coven who gathered for these witches' Sabbaths. Among the eight people that Duncan accused was an old woman named Agnes Sampson. Sampson was a known healer, which is probably what led Duncan to name her. Sampson might have escaped with her life, had she not requested an audience with the Scottish king. King James I was the only son of Mary Queen of Scots and ascended to the throne of Scotland in 1567 when he was just a year old. By 1590, he had taken a queen named Anne of Denmark, the daughter of the King of Denmark in Norway. His marriage to Anne was the king's first introduction to witchcraft. In Denmark, as elsewhere in mainland Europe, witch trials were widespread. After Anne's voyage to Scotland to meet her betrothed was aborted due to horrific storms, and after James's trip across the North Sea was equally vexed, the king arrived in his fiancée's kingdom to find that a group of women calling themselves witches had taken responsibility for the storms. They were promptly executed. King James was an educated and skeptical man. Were it not for his first-hand experience witnessing the persecution of witches in Denmark, James might simply have ignored the accusations of witchcraft spreading in Scotland instead of agreeing to meet Agnes Sampson while she was in custody. When Agnes Sampson went before the king, she did the unthinkable. Not only did she admit to being a witch, she gave the king proof. Also in the pamphlet News from Scotland, it is said that Sampson confessed before the king's majesty sundry things which were so miraculous and strange that his majesty said the witches were all extreme liars. Whereat she answered, she would not wish his majesty to suppose her words to be false, but rather to believe them, she would discover such matter unto him as his majesty should not in any way doubt. And thereupon, taking his majesty a little aside, she declared unto him the very words which passed between the king's majesty and his queen at Oslo in Norway the first night of their marriage. The king wondered greatly and swore by the living God that he believed all of the devils in hell could not have discovered the same. The ensuing imprisonment and executions that resulted from Galus Duncan and Agnes Sampson's confessions came to be called the North Berwick Witch Trials. The trials convinced King James that witchcraft was a perilous threat and prompted him to write a book called Demonology, published in 1597. 
The book touched on demons, divination, and necromancy, and encouraged the persecution of witches to protect the Christian world. Six years after demonology was published, the virgin queen of the Golden Age, Elizabeth I, died, and James became King of England. And the only thing that makes a book more popular than being in Oprah's book club is being written by the King of England himself. Demonology flew off the shelves faster than witches to their Sabbaths. It was one of the books that Shakespeare consulted when crafting his Weird Sisters. And it was the noose that hung thousands of innocent people, the match that lit the fire under countless stakes. In Scotland alone, 3,837 people were accused of witchcraft, 84% of them women. Between the 16th and 18th centuries, it is estimated that around 50,000 people were tried and killed as witches across the Western world, including Galas Duncan herself, who was burned at the stake. The impact of the North Berwick trials and subsequent witch hunts on Western ideas and imagination is still being felt. The young maidservant and the old healer she accused helped create a persistent archetype, that of the knowing female healer persecuted. To some, the witch trials are a historical curiosity. To others, they are evidence of misogyny at its most efficient. To others still, the women tried as witches in the 15th and 16th centuries were practitioners of a pagan religion, bound up in earth goddess worship that had survived the crushing forces of Christendom, an ancient religion that persists even today. To them, these are the burning times. But not all witches were burned, and not all witch trials were in Europe. The curtains of the 17th century opened to Shakespeare and his new tragedy, Macbeth, but they closed in 1692 on a town called Salem. This is John Daly in the Salem Court of Massachusetts Bay Province. The recess in the witchcraft trial of 71-year-old Rebecca Norse, which started at 10 o'clock in the morning of this 29th day of June, 1692, is just about over and the trial should soon resume. As you know, Rebecca Norse, great-grandmother and mother of eight, whose husband owns a 300-acre farm not far from the Crane River Bridge, went on trial this morning as a witch. The penalty for witchcraft is death. This courthouse on Townhouse Lane is jammed to the rafters. Salem, Massachusetts, June 1692. CBS is there. A Salem court tries a woman as a witch. CBS invites you to believe that our microphone is there waiting for the verdict. All things are as they were then except for one thing. CBS is there. This broadcast, the fourth... In, a in the wake of World War II, the Columbia Broadcasting System, or CBS was experimenting with new ways to use the equipment, reporters, and radio talent they had assembled to cover the previous six years of carnage. In 1947, the company debuted a new radio show called CBS Is There. One of the earliest episodes, which hit radio waves in 1947, took listeners into a colonial courtroom, reporting on the trial of a Massachusetts resident who stood accused of witchcraft. The trial of Rebecca Nurse, or Norse, depending on various spellings in the historical record, took place in the summer of 1692, after six months of chaos that saw bewitched children screaming and seizing, supposed witches as young as four years old imprisoned, and just a few weeks earlier, the first execution of a witch, a death by hanging. Unlike the social outcasts dragged before the Salem courts, Rebecca Nurse was 71 years old, 
a respected figure in the community, a pious woman. Ultimately, the trial of an elderly great-grandmother shook the people of Salem from their hysteria and helped end the witch hunts. To understand how Rebecca Nurse came to be begging for her life in a courtroom, we must go back a decade to an unlucky man living in Barbados and a slave named Tichiba. Samuel Paris was an Englishman who inherited his family's flourishing Caribbean plantation in Barbados. He had 70 slaves and a large inheritance, but still he struggled, resorting to selling his property and moving to Boston. When his attempts at becoming a merchant also failed, he turned to God. After frustrated fights with the locals about salary and firewood, Paris moved to Salem to become the town's minister. With him, he brought his wife, children, and a bad attitude. Almost immediately, Paris was disliked, but the royal congregation had trouble keeping clergymen around, and even a cantankerous minister was better than no minister at all. When Paris stayed to move his family to Salem, he also brought two slaves, one of them named Tichiba. Tichiba's origins are murky, and have only been made murkier by centuries of historical revision, fictional characters, fetishism, and some truly dreadful Victorian illustrations. What we do know is that Tichiba was born to the Arawak tribe somewhere in South America. As a child, she was sold into slavery in the Caribbean. It is possible that she was among the 70 slaves that worked the Paris family plantation. Regardless, she was brought to the Massachusetts Bay Colony from Barbados by Samuel Paris as a teenager in the 1680s. Despite later depictions of Tichiba as an old, grotesque woman, elderly and exotic, she would have been young, in her late 20s or early 30s by January of 1692, when fits and screams in the Paris household sparked the deadliest witch trials in American history. Samuel Paris had in his charge two preteen girls, his 11-year-old niece, Abigail Williams, and his 9-year-old daughter, Elizabeth Paris, often called Betty. Last year, author Stacey Schiff published a blockbuster book about the trials called The Witches, and her passage describing the scenes of the Paris household read more like the plot of a horror movie than the facts of history. The cousins complained of bites and pinches by invisible agents. They barked and yelped. They fell dumb. They went limp or spasmatically rigid. Neither girl ran a fever. Neither suffered from epilepsy. The girls launched into foolish, ridiculous speeches, which they neither themselves nor any others could make sense of. They crept into holes or under chairs and stools from which they were extracted with difficulty. One disappeared halfway down a well. In 17th century New England, these were obvious signs of witchcraft. Rather than being annoyed by the commotion, Samuel Paris would have seen this as the devil's attempts to infiltrate his household, a sure sign that he was doing the Lord's work. But the devil needed an agent on earth to do his bidding. So who was bewitching the girls? In an effort to uncover the devil's handmaiden, some in the Paris household followed an old counter-magic folk recipe and baked a witch's cake. A trusted family friend named Mary Sibley supposedly worked with Tichiba to make a cake of rye flour and the urine of the bewitched girls. They fed the cake to a dog, and it was thought that the dog could then detect the witch somehow. We don't know if the dog ever had the chance to go sniffing for Satan. When the minister discovered such a foul confection was cooked under his roof, he was furious. He said that baking a witch cake to find a witch was, as he put it, going to the devil for help against the devil. In February, the girls themselves named their tormentors. Two women named Sarah, who both fit the outcast archetype established a century earlier in trials across the Atlantic. Sarah Good was a homeless beggar and social outcast who did not attend church, in part because she couldn't afford Sunday best to wear to services. Sarah Osborne was a 49-year-old woman struggling with an illness that kept her from church. She was married to a much younger man and had also had legal disputes with a family very close to the minister Paris and his brood. 
the Putnams. The first girl outside of the Paris home to become bewitched was none other than Anne Putnam Jr. And it was Anne, at age 12, who quickly named a third witch loose in Salem, Tichaba. Warrants were issued for the arrest of three women, and in the first days of March, they were each put through an examination. In a break from common practices, the examinations were public. The accusers and their relatives were present, and the proceedings were often interrupted by shouts and comments from onlookers. Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne both denied making a contract with the devil to plague the girls, and Tichaba did too, at first. No one knows why Tichaba confessed. It is commonly thought that Samuel Paris beat and compelled Tichaba to admit to dealing with the devil. After all, he was hellish enough as a minister. Just imagine him as a master. There is convincing evidence in her examination alone that she was coerced, that someone put words in her mouth. Tichaba was illiterate, but her testimony betrayed an intricate knowledge of European witchcraft and trials, knowledge that would only have been circulated in books far from the reaches of a household slave. In the 325 years since Tichaba gave her testimony, this explanation for her words and behavior has been clouded over by reimaginings of Tichaba's race. Contemporary accounts of Tichaba only ever describe her as Indian, the same term used by locals to describe the nearby threat of Native American tribes whose land the Puritans had stolen. But many mistakenly imagine her as a black woman who dabbled in the dark arts and taught the young girls of Salem the voodoo spells of her people. Tichaba's ties to Africa are a reckless invention. In 1949, a historian named Marion Starkey discussed Tichaba's supposed knowledge of voodoo, a religion of the African diaspora that originated in Haiti and was later brought to America by slaves. But there is no evidence to support this claim. The image of Tichaba as an African woman seeped into pop culture when Arthur Miller used Salem as a setting for his 1953 play, The Crucible. The trials were a metaphor for McCarthy-era witch hunts of suspected communist sympathizers in the midst of the Cold War. In performances, Tichaba was cast as African-American. When Miller later wrote the screenplay for the 1996 film version of The Crucible, he doubled down on Tichaba's race. In the movie's opening scene, Tichaba, played by black actress Charlene Woodward, dances around a bonfire in the forest, encouraging the frenzied, sexed-up teenage girls of Salem to cast love spells on their crushes. Suddenly, Winona Ryder's wild-eyed Abigail Williams grabs a chicken from Tichaba, smashes its head against a rock, and smears its blood across her mouth and down her pale chin in a bad Hollywood interpretation of voodoo. Make a spell on Joseph Baker, Tichaba. Make him love me. Make Daniel pull my husband. Bring me out of town. I want Jacob Poole to love me forever. Abby, who do you want? Miraculously, Tichaba survived the hysteria that consumed Salem at the end of the 17th century. Not much is known about her life beyond the trials, except that, unsurprisingly, she did not remain in the household of Samuel Paris. Later, she recanted her confession, but it was too late. Twenty people were executed, including Rebecca Nurse, who was hanged on the 19th of July, 1692. This time, the town's adolescent accusers had gone too far. The body of a godly 71-year-old great-grandmother hanging from the gallows cast a long shadow of doubt, guilt, and regret across Salem. In the years after the trial, 
Apologies were made, confessions recanted, excommunications reversed. For a time, it seemed that America had learned its lesson. And then, in 1975, the state of California imprisoned another witch. Her name was Z. Budapest. Halloween night, the Witch's New Year, was an appropriate time for the opening of Z. Budapest's new play, The Rise of the Fates. Gene Robertson was at the premiere and filed this report. This segment was broadcast from the KPFA radio station outside of Berkeley, California, in 1982. Just a decade shy of Salem's tricentennial, and wouldn't you know it, America was filled with witches. A number of us from the KPFA Women's Department celebrated Halloween, the Witch's New Year, at Ollie's with Z. Budapest, a well-known witch. For the occasion, she wrote and produced a play entitled The Rise of the Fates, which has many levels of symbolic meaning for women. The spirit of the play is, of course, fun. You know, you, you remember way back when they said the women's movement had no sense of humor? I think Z has proved that we do indeed have a sense of humor. Audiences are encouraged to challenge the myths they have been raised on. I think the play is, it's comical, but it has something to say. What, what is that that it says? that you shouldn't be suckered into a lot of mythologies and whatnot that are just handed to you just because somebody says they're real. You need to examine things and say, wait a minute, how does this affect me? Is it real for me? The purpose of the play, according to author Z. Budapest, is to improve the network connecting feminists. She said that through genuinely connecting with women of the past and the present, we create a chain of being, always giving birth to the new while nurturing our roots. I think the meaning of the play is that women are rising and, and we are discovering our mythology, our past, we are appreciating the suffragists. We have new saints, we have Sojourner Truth as one of our saints and we have, and, and that, that really just means um, respect. We respect the women who worked for our well-being today and we are doing the same so that generations after generations women form a chain of change and, and bring in the new world. Through changing the inside, the spirit, we change the outside, the world. In other words, all change begins inside our heads, inside of our self-image, inside of our hearts and then we project it on the outside world and then real changes happen. If you just look at politics, and I love politics, it's a form of religion, but what it doesn't do, it doesn't move the heart. So you have to go back to spiritual ways of approaching revolution and move the hearts that in turn will move the minds, that in turn will move the hands and the deeds. So it has to be, we have to approach the heart. In her play, Budapest uses humor to energize and unite audiences. She said that especially in the Reagan years, we need to emphasize joy in order to give ourselves energy to continue. Not only were people practicing witchcraft, they were meeting in covens, publishing books, and even writing plays starring goddesses. These witches were a part of a larger movement called neo-paganism, the umbrella term for a plethora of religions that focus on a return to nature worship, polytheism, and ritual. From the 1960s onwards, various factions of paganism spread from coast to coast. And on the West Coast, the biggest witch in town was an immigrant, lesbian, feminist, Wiccan priestess named Z. Budapest. Z. Budapest was first named Susanna Moxie. Born in Budapest in 1940, she adopted her birth city as her surname in the years after her escape from Hungary as a teenage political refugee. While attending the University of Chicago, she studied improv at the Second City, the same comedy theater that gave us Stephen Colbert and Tina Fey. 
As was expected of her, Budapest took a husband and bore him two sons. But one day, after living in New York City as a bored housewife, Budapest divorced her husband, absconded to Southern California, and did what young liberated women did in the 1960s. She joined the feminist revolution. But Budapest felt something was lacking in the movement, something spiritual. NPR correspondent Margot Adler talked to Budapest as she was writing her now-famous 1979 book on neo-paganism, Drawing Down the Moon. Budapest told Adler, I was a witch before I was a feminist. My family kept a book of who had lived and who had died, starting in 1270. There were quite a few herbalists in my family. Many people in my family were healers. I observed my mother talking to the dead. I saw her go into trance and feel presences around her. She does spontaneous magic and chants and rhymes. She tells fortunes and can still the wind. Budapest's early experiences with her mother's folk magic was probably what drew her to a more organized magical religion as an adult, Wicca. The history of Wicca is complicated and messy, so for now I will share a very abbreviated version of the story. A man named Gerald Gardner was born in the 1880s, and after many years of gallivanting around the British Empire, he retired to the southeast of England. There, he claimed to discover a coven or witch cult that was still practicing a pre-Christian religion, having survived centuries of witch trials by passing down their traditions in secret, one generation to the next. Gardner decided to share this religion, which he named Wicca, with the rest of the world in the 1940s and 50s. In the subsequent decades, his initiates spread Wicca to the United States, and inevitably, some practitioners formed their own splinter groups. During a ceremony in Hollywood, California, during the winter solstice of 1971, Z. Budapest founded Dianic Wicca. Budapest's version of Wicca was female-centric, rejecting some of the gendered teachings of Wicca's white male imperialist founder. Dianic Wicca arrived at the perfect cultural moment. Second-wave feminism had pulled American society into a riptide. Budapest named the first feminist group of witches the Susan B. Anthony Coven. Following her teachings, other covens gathered across the country, taking their names from famous suffragettes. Diana Wicca spread in tandem with New Age bookstores and later the internet. More and more women joined covens or became solitary practitioners, all drawn to a tradition that gave women primacy and agency after being ignored for centuries by patriarchal mainstream religions. After an occult dark age brought on by Rosemary's Baby and the satanic panic of the 1980s, the flourishing of Wicca inspired a renaissance of witchy girl power pop culture in the 1990s. Hocus Pocus, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, The Craft, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Practical Magic, and Charmed all cast spells across screens during the 20th century's final decade. In 1975, Z Budapest moved to Venice, California, and opened a store called the Feminist Wicca, where she sold candles and read tarot. However, fortune-telling, especially for profit, was illegal across the United States, even hippy-dippy California. One day, a woman sat down for a reading from Budapest. When the witch told the story years later, she said that as she was laying cards down for the woman, suddenly there was an intense smell of cat shit. I don't know whether Budapest meant literally or figuratively, but her instincts were right. The woman was an undercover cop, and the high priestess of Dianic Wicca was arrested for fortune-telling. Her trial was attended by pagan protesters, and her defense attorney said that Budapest was the first prosecuted witch since Salem. She was found guilty. As a result of the sting, Budapest decided to make Dianic Wicca an official religion, which would give her and all other practitioners protections under the First Amendment. Because tarot reading is a legitimate part of the Wiccan religion, and, Budapest argued, a way for priestesses to give religious counsel to followers just as a priest hears confession, the Supreme Court of California overturned Budapest's earlier guilty verdict. Laws against fortune-telling were revoked. They were now unconstitutional. 
This legal acceptance of Wicca made way for more open practices of paganism in America. Witchcraft, bound up with feminism and 90s Kugel cachet, is now on the rise. Thanks in part to Z Budapest and other 20th century witches, more and more people are coming out of the broom closet. My name is Haley Moon. I'm originally from upstate New York. I live in Jersey City, and I'm a witch. My name is Miel. I was raised in the woods of northern Vermont and later in the Pacific Northwest, and now I live in Massachusetts, and I'm a witch. Hola, me llamo Laura González. Soy de la Ciudad de México y vivo en Chicago desde 1998. Mi práctica es una mezcla entre la magia folclórica mexicana, el paganismo y la wicca. Hello, my name is Laura Gonzalez. I am from Mexico City. I've been living in Chicago since 1998, and my practice is a mixture of Mexican folk magic, paganism, and wicca. My name is Siobhan. I'm from San Francisco. I live in Chicago by way of Boston, Paris, New York, and I'm a pagan. My name is Zofia. I'm from suburban Connecticut and live in Philadelphia, and I'm a bruja. My name is Alicia, and I live in Pennsylvania. I am an eclectic, multicultural witch, pulling from the reclaiming tradition as well as scientific fact and theory. Hi, my name is Megan. I'm from Vista, California. I live in Chicago, and I'm a witch. I'm Kevin from Chicago, Illinois, and I'm a practicing witch. Hi, I'm Ellen Dreaming Scorpion, and I'm from Orlando, Florida, but I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I am definitely a witch. The term weird has a strange origin. When Shakespeare used it to describe the witches in Macbeth in 1606, it didn't just mean odd or bizarre or uncanny. It was used interchangeably with wayward and sometimes spelled W-Y-R-D, which meant fate. I was raised by my mother in a small town in rural Wisconsin, and our home was pretty pagan. I had my first past life reading when I was eight. There are photos of my aura alongside goofy pictures from elementary school. I spent my allowance on crystals at a nearby New Age bookstore. When I got my first period the summer before high school, I had a womanhood ceremony, the night of a full moon. One of the women who gathered for the ceremony, by the light of a big bonfire, was my paternal grandmother. When I would spend summers with her at her house in Minnesota, while the other grandchildren tore to the lake, splashing after minnows and thrashing cattails, I would sit at her medieval dining table with the family books. I was the one to inherit her pale skin, freckled with constellations and I also inherited the care and keeping of our family history. Once upon a time, our clan's ancestral seat was just outside of Edinburgh at Dundas Castle. I have only been inside once when I was 11. It is now owned by another family, purchased after our ancestors went bankrupt in the 19th century. They were forced to move to Canada, then Minnesota, the poorer they got. This fall from grace wasn't surprising for the Dundas clan. They had been flip-flopping from the right to the wrong side of history for centuries. 
In the 1700s, they were sometimes Jacobites, other times loyalists. In the 1500s, they were popular with Mary, Queen of Scots, mother of James I. You can see letters from her to the Dundas clan in the Edinburgh Public Library, their heavy wax seals still intact. She was beheaded. In October of 2016, I got the Dundas clan motto tattooed on my forearm. In the same font as the family crest, it reads Essayi. It is a command in French. It doesn't mean vanquish or conquer or destroy. It means simply try. Back in the 11th century, my ancestors were the kings of Scotland. The family ruled for decades until my many greats grandfather, Crinan of Dunkeld, was killed by a rival, a pretender to the throne. That same rival killed Crinan's son, my many, many greats granduncle, a man named Duncan. When the Weird Sisters in Shakespeare's play chanted, by the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes, they weren't talking about the fearsome goddess Hectate or some ungodly supernatural force. They were talking about a regular, mundane man. They were talking about Macbeth. As you can probably imagine, I'm with the witches. Mystic is written and produced by me, Bronte Mansfield. Our logo is by Witchcraft Design Studio. Our music is composed by Sergei Karamisinov. If you enjoyed our first episode, please take a moment to rate and review Mystic on iTunes. This is the best way for us to grow and reach more listeners. Visit us online at mysticpodcast.com where you can see an episode transcript and a list for further reading. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Mystic Podcast, where we post teasers and behind-the-scenes photos. Funding for the first episode of Mystic was generously provided by the Masters of New Arts Journalism program at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. A huge thank you to my thesis advisors, Zushko Petrovich and Christy McGuire. A special thanks to Mystic's board of directors, Jenna Blazevich, James T. Green, Kate Harriman, Faye Nowitz, Haley Shifo, and Cher Vincent. Shout out to Omar Gutierrez at Revolution Tattoo in Chicago for the great ink. Audio in this episode was provided by the Pacifica Foundation and Cadman Records. And finally, thank you for listening to Mystic.